This is OBG Project's Grand Rounds Live, a podcast of the OBG Project's monthly webinar featuring cutting-edge OB and GYN topics. Our Grand Rounds Live webinar is free for OBG First members. With an OBG First membership, you have access to the webinar slides, handouts, and future Grand Rounds Live webinars. To learn more about membership and other perks of an OBG First membership, go to obgproject.com forward slash get first. Enjoy the webinar. So this is the first of the OBG Project and OBG First Grand Rounds. And we're so excited to bring you this series. Um, I'm Rebecca Dunsmore-Sue. I work with Jane Van Dis on the L&D book for OBG Project. and. This particular series, we're working with Sue Gross and OBG First to present some CME um, grand rounds, because I think we've all been sort of missing these educational opportunities over the last uh, year of pandemic. And we really designed this series um, to tackle the topics that always seem to be coming up as something that's maybe something we weren't well trained on or something that's a real interest online and in all our social channels. Um, before I move on to today's topic, I just wanted to introduce next month, which will be um, vaginal birth after cesarean with Dr. Sarah Petruska um, from the University of Louisville School of Medicine. And we're really excited about that presentation as well. Um, instructions for how to sign up for that one will be coming shortly to your email or favorite social media channel. Um, tonight, however, I'm super excited to introduce a really good talk um, on sexual function and sexual health. And I'm excited to introduce a friend. So Dr. Fuller is a friend of mine. She's also one of my partners. Um, we work together here in Seattle. And I'm excited for you all to get to hear her expertise, which I get to benefit from every day. Um, Dr. Fuller uh, is from Minnesota originally. Um, she did her medical school at the University of Minnesota and residency at Parkland in Texas. And then she's been in Seattle since then. Um, as a generalist OBGYN, but has focused the last few years on GYN only and sexual function as a specialty. Um, she is a NAM certified menopause practitioner. She's also a member of ISWICH, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And she is truly an expert in this area and a, gives a really good talk. So Ashley, I am thrilled to have you start. Well, thank you, Becca, for introducing me, and uh, um, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here, and I thank everyone who uh, decided to sign up for my talk. Um, I um, I think this, I'm really excited about this topic, and I have a lot of passion for it because I feel like it's something that we didn't learn a lot in residency. Maybe that's changing now. I, I'm uh, more than a few years out of residency, but I personally didn't get a lot of um, education on this in residency, so I do think it's really important because it's something we see so much in um, general GYN practice. Um, so let me make sure my... Oh, there we go. So I don't have any disclosures. I do want to mention that this is not the most gender neutral talk. I do use the word women. Uh, when I use the word women, I am meaning uh, people born with a vagina. Um, this is a little bit uh, focused on uh, cisgendered uh, women. Um, uh, that's kind of what my practice fo is focused on or a lot of the data about this stuff is focused on, but generally it can be generalized a little bit further out too. Uh, but that is what I'm meaning when I use the word women. Um, so first of all, let's talk about how common is this. So this is actually, you know, sexual dysfunction or, or concerns about sex and sexual problems is a very, very common thing. So back in 2008, they tried to quantify how common it is, and they did a study called the Preside Study. So they had 30,000 women in the United States answer a questionnaire about if they had any sexual problems. And about 44% of women responded that they had a sexual problem, whether it was desire, arousal, orgasm. Um, and then they asked if, if women had distress with it. So, um, uh, meaning distress, meaning were they embarrassed? Did they have guilt? Did they have, you know, uh, distress in general about this problem or depression? And about 12% of women said they had distress about one of their sexual dysfunctions. So that is a lot of women. And for this talk specifically, I'm gonna kind of focus on desire because I think it's one of the things we hear the most. And 10% of women said that they had a problem with desire, you know, dis distress about their lack of desire. So, I mean, that is, you know, that is a really high number. And when you're seeing annual exams and um, seeing patients, even pregnant patients, it is something that, that then can easily come up and something that we should be screening patients for. 
because I think it's something that patients are often embarrassed to bring up or feel like there really is anything that we can do to help them. And so um, I think it's important to bring up. Now, I remember when I, uh, I only do GYN now, but when I was a generalist and patients would bring this up at their annual, I would cringe a little bit in my inside because I didn't really know how to help them. And I also didn't really feel like I had the time to take to like talk to them about this. And so I'm hoping today that I can give you a couple uh, points to have a quick discussion um, quick about this really complex problem um, and then um, kind of give you some ideas if you want to have the patient come back and do a, like a longer uh, discussion about it um, but at least um, convince you that it's worth asking about because our patients deserve us uh, paying attention to their, their their sexuality and asking about it because if they're not talking to us about it they're probably talking to their friends who don't may not know anything or looking online and listening to like Gwyneth Paltrow and things like that. So I do think we get to actively ask patients about this. So how do we ask them? So really it's just really bringing it up. Um, in, in surveys that 80% of patients or even more prefer that we bring it up. They don't really wanna be the ones to bring it up. Um, and in fact, 80% of women in some surveys who have low desire actually won't even bring it up with their, with their um, clinicians because they're just too embarrassed about it. Um, you should use simple direct language, be compassionate about it. You can normalize it um, and show that you're not embarrassed about it um, and that you're not gonna be judgment, uh, judgmental towards the patient. So Becca mentioned ISHWISH. So ISHWISH, the International Society of Women's Sexual Health is a great organization that I'm going to be talking about um, a fair amount during this presentation. Um, if you are interested in learning more about uh, sexual function, sexual dysfunction, how to take care of patients with these concerns, I highly recommend um, their organization. One of their goals is to help um, uh, healthcare practitioners learn more about taking care of women with sexual problems. They have a great course that they do in the fall down in Scottsdale um, and they did it virtual this past year. Um, but they have a bunch of consensus statements and process of care um, articles that you can also look up. And one of their process of care um, articles is about how to screen patients for sexual dysfunction. And so, as I mentioned before, just asking, you can sometimes use a ubiquity statement when you screen, saying something like, you know, a lot of postmenopausal patients have pain with sex or low desire. Do you have any of those feelings? Um, you can ask about it in the context of a relationship, like how is your relationship with your partner? Um, do you have any concerns with your sexual relationship with your partner? Or you could ask about basic sexual functioning, like um, desire, orgasm, arousal, things like that. The way I screen for it is I ask patients, are you in a sexual relationship? And if they say yes, I say, who do you have sex with? I find that's a, a good way to include multiple gendered um, partners or multiple partners in general. Um, and then uh, I ask them if they have any sexual concerns about uh, that they want to talk to me about, any concerns about sexual pleasure or sexual pain, things like that. So what is low desire and when should we be concerned about it? When does it become a diagnosis? So hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD, is defined as six months of a lack of motivation for sexual activity, um, that can be either reduced or absent spontaneous desire, so not wanting to like spontaneously have sex, um, reduced or absent responsive desire, and we're gonna talk about the differences of those in a minute, um, or even difficulty maintaining interest during sexual activity, um, loss of desire to initiate or participate in sexual activity, so even maybe avoiding situations that may lead to sexual activity, um, and this is combined with this kind of distress that we're talking about, frustration, grief, confidence, loss, worry. So and remember, this is about 10% of, of, of women in the United States probably at least fall into this category of having this low libido stress. So when patients bring this up to me that they have this or they come in for a visit about low desire, I usually start with taking a big step back and talk about our sexual function as women. I tell them that our sexual function is complex. It is not just an on and off switch. It has to do with how we feel about our day, how we feel about our bodies, how we feel about our relationship, how much stress we're under, how much sleep we got last night. It is very, very multifactorial. We also have sex for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes we have sex for pleasure, sometimes to please our partner, sometimes for emotional intimacy. Um, for patients in relationships with men, I feel like our male partners often don't understand 
um, our sexuality and where we get to uh, or, or where we are, um, especially in long-term relationships. So originally when we talk about sexual response, there was the Masters and Johnson sexual response curve where you have you know, arousal, orgasm, plateau, and resolution. And there's not really any desire in that model. And so it doesn't really, I don't feel really fit for, for a lot of people, a lot of women especially. So Rosemary Basson came up with this kind of female sexual response cycle that's a, a circular cycle. It's a little complex, but the way I kind of describe it is that we often don't have spontaneous desire when we're in long-term relationships. Not everyone, but a lot of patients, a lot of women don't have spontaneous desire, meaning we may not drive home from work and think, gosh, I just can't wait to have sex tonight. But if we're in a situation where our partner initiates or we have an like, emotional intimate, like a uh, intimate conversation with our partner and it leads to us having sex, we may be in the, in the moment of having sex and think, wow, this actually feels really good. I don't want, know why I don't want to do this more often, but it doesn't really necessarily make us want to do it more often. I've heard a couple of good analogies. One analogy is like, it's kind of like going to the gym. So you, you know, at the beginning of your day, you prioritize going, you, you make an appointment in your mind that you're gonna go to the gym after work because you, back when we went to gyms, uh, because you felt like, you know, you wanna be healthy and you know it's important and all day you kind of aren't looking forward to it. And you drive to the gym and you get there and you're still not really all that excited about it. But once you get on the treadmill and you start working out, when your blood starts pumping and you start sweating and you think, oh gosh, this actually feels really good. You kind of get those endorphins going. You think, why did I dread this all day? This has been, this is really good and it feels good. I, I wish I wanted to do this more often. Or I've also heard the, the, uh, the analogy of like, it's like being invited to a party that you know you're going to have a great time at, but for some reason you don't really want to go. And so this response model kind of gives you this, this kind of responsive desire where you can enter this model of wanting to have sex at different places so you know you may not have a spontaneous desire in the middle but emotional intimacy or a little bit of like uh, you know some some touch from your partner may lead you down the path toward having some desire there's also the dual control model so this is the idea that in our brains we have um like a sexual control center that's constantly scanning our environment, trying to decide whether to be turned on or turned off. Some people can talk about this as the, the accelerator and the brake. Stereotypically, women tend to have a more uh, sensitive brake and men tend to have more sensitive accelerator, but we all have a different makeup of, what, of who we are and what makes up our accelerator and our brake. But what's kind of cool about it, there's actually biological things like neurotransmitters that help decide these things. Um, it help, help, helped um, send us down these pathways. So excitatory signals are dopamine, norepinephrine, oxytocin, and some melanocortins. And we'll talk about these more when we talk about how we, uh, how we treat some of these things. And then there's inhibitory signals like serotonin, opioids. It's also important to think about all the overlapping parts of our sexuality, sexuality and sexual response. So this is like a biopsychosocial model of our response. And we think about how we have biological things, like the things we were just talking about, like neurotransmitters. So, you know, how our dopamine is or our, our serotonin, um, things like that. Also our psychology. So, you know, for a lot of patients, depression has a huge overlap with low libido and for HSDD. And so, is, you know, and that it overlaps with the biology and the neurotransmitters. Interpersonal relationship things uh, play a part in this too. So, um, you know, people in bad relationships or abusive relationships, things like that, or have history of abuse, sometimes this can have an effect on our sexuality, of course. And then social cultural, like our upbringings, cultural norms, expectations, education, things like that um, can also affect this. So I really think it's important to kind of look at the big picture. So I think people come, especially patients come in and say, I need, so, I need a medication to help me with my low libido. And I think it's important to take the bigger picture into account. So what age is it most likely to be seen in? And so, um, you know, in that same study, the PRESIDE study, um, they, uh, they, they, this is looking at the same data in a different way. They're looking at age. Um, and so you can see in the green line, it's any sexual um, uh, problem um, with distress, but in the peach lines, it's actually the, uh, um, or the coral is desire. And so you can see that um, it kind of goes up between 20 and 30 and between 30, 40 and 50 is where you're going to see the highest prevalence of 
um, this kind of sexual related distress about your low desire. So Ishwish actually has a process of care that they recommend that you use to screen for decreased sexual desire and to diagnose HSDD. So you could choose to give this to your patients as a questionnaire when they come in, if we're coming in for this specific concern. Um, I think this is a little much to screen patients for if you're to ask everybody, but when you know patients are already coming in for this specific purpose, or if someone brings this up at a visit, you could do this. Um, so it's actually only five questions. Um, in the past, was your level of sexual desire or interest good and satisfying to you? Has there been a decrease in your level of sexual desire? Are you bothered by your decreased level? Would you like your level of sexual desire or interest to increase? And so for most people, they're going to say yes to this if they have HSDD. If they say no, it may be that they don't have HSDD, but they have kind of a uh, lower sex drive in general, but aren't super stressed about it or somewhat asexual. And that's fine too. It's important to say that when you ask patients about their sex drive or about about sexual concerns, if they say like that they are, don't have a lot of sex drive, but they're not really bothered by it, it's not necessarily a problem. Um, it is a problem if they're not bothered by it, but they're bothered about it because their partner is bothered about it. I would argue that they are actually bothered about it, and that's what I often see. Um, and then five, question five is kind of the money question. It's kind of helping you determine, is, is, this, is there something that we could modify that's contributing to this low desire, or is this something that's kind of innate right now, um, or kind of bio, more biologic? So, um, so this is a great way to kind of focus what you can talk to the patient about, about things that you could maybe modify to make their libido better. So operation, depression, or injuries, medications, especially SSRIs, uh, hormonal changes like pregnancy, childbirth, menopause stuff, um, sexual other sexual issues. So there's a big overlap of sexual issues like pain. Um, sexual pain is a huge one. Um, I, off, I always ask about our patients to talk about um, low libido, like are they having, are they enjoying sex when they have it? Because if they're not enjoying sex when they have it or they're having pain with it or they can't orgasm, those are other things that we have to address for them to actually um, want to have sex, I would say. Partner sexual problems and then dissatisfaction with relationship or stress and fatigue. And I would say for a lot of my patients, stress and fatigue is a huge one. I mean. Uh, the world we're living in right now doesn't help, and I don't think the last year has improved most patients, um, uh, most people's sex lives, um, but you know, I definitely think that's an important one to talk to patients about. So we'll talk about those a little bit more in a minute, but I wanted to show you, this is the process of care that Ishwish has, has created. It's a kind of a two-part um, uh, flow chart, so I couldn't put, uh, it's a long flow chart, I had to put it in two parts so you can see it all. But basically, Ask permission to discuss or bring up our, you know, are you having sex? Do you have sexual concerns? Like we talked about, uh, they, do they have low desire? Um, doing this just decreased sexual desire screener to help you kind of figure out where to go from there. Do they really have HSDD or do they have something else going on? And then helping you figure out this biopsychosocial um, assessment. So those are, that's question number five. So the next part of this is looking at if they, you know, if they don't have modifiable uh, psychosocial factors, then we can kind of um, separate them out into premenopausal and postmenopausal and look at what options of therapies that you can offer them. And we'll talk about those in a couple minutes. And then if they do have potentially modifiable biopsychosocial um, factors, then we should educate them and how to try to modify those things. So let's talk more about that. What are those things? So stress and fatigue is a huge one. And so I talk to patients a lot um, about this because I feel like a lot of um, women in their 40s um, have big careers, they have kids at home, they're taking care of aging pay, pay, uh, parents, there's a lot of things on their plates. And I think that for a lot of people, when we're in survival mode, it's really easy to put sex on the back burner. It's kind of sometimes doesn't even, doesn't even come into our psyche because we're just so in the survival mode. And a lot of patients tell me, look, I would just rather go to sleep at night. I don't want to have sex. I'm just exhausted. And so some of this is looking at self-care. What kind of things can you do to help you feel better um, in your general life? So that can be, you know, having more exercise, um, you know, uh, making time for yourself, being in therapy potentially, um, getting a good sleep at night, um, mindfulness too. So there's a lot of data about, there's some data about mindfulness therapy and how that can help. And I do think that helps for a lot of people when they're in the act of having sex, they may be so focused on all the other things they have to do, they don't even really, they're not even really present during it. 
Um, so being mindful and able to enjoy the emotional intimacy and the pleasure that comes with it, I think can be helpful. Relationship issues can be huge. And so I think that's an important thing to look at. Sex therapy can be really good for this. Um, I think that going in with a partner is really helpful, especially some patients come in to tell me they have low libido and they actually haven't had sex for a couple of years with their partner because they just kind of stopped having sex. And when there's, when there's been that long, sometimes it's hard to kind of jump back into it. It becomes somewhat awkward. And so I think a sex therapist is great for that because it can help really work with communication and sometimes to do some, something called sensate focus where they kind of ease you back into intimacy with your partner without the pressure of actually having um, full on sex. Um, if the partner has sexual dysfunction, that's huge too because uh, sexual problems kind of play off each other with partners. Um, prior sexual education attitudes, I mean, uh, I think it's important to educate patients about that kind of stuff. Um, trauma, trauma is, is a big deal, and I definitely think therapy should um, is helpful for patients who have a history of trauma, especially if that's something coming up for them still. Uh, hormonal things, and we'll talk about hormonal treatments, but, um, uh, but also just kind of pregnancy and childbirth and menopause, sometimes pain is part of all that, and so pelvic floor physical therapy can be really, really helpful. Um, medications, um, SSRIs. We'll talk about options for treating SSRI-related SSRI sexual dysfunction, but that's a common one. I already mentioned how depression has a huge overlap, um, but also the medications we use to treat depression sometimes definitely cause lower arousal, um, libido, and orgasm. And so sometimes those things can be hard to treat, so you don't want to just take patients off of them. And then looking at uh, like surgeries and things like that. So some of the things I tell patients to do after I talk to them about this is think, have them start reading some, some books about this. So some of the books I recommend is A Tired Woman's Guide to Passionate Sex. Um, it's a really funny book and it's kind of trying to change that internal conversation we have in our head. But instead of it being like, oh, I'm so tired, I just don't wanna do, do this tonight, to no, I'm really tired and stressed, this would be a really good stress reliever for me. Um, it's a funny book, it's a quick book, and I think it's really good. And then Come As You Are by Emily Nagasaki. It's, that's a great book. And if you haven't read that, I do recommend it. It gets more into the in, into women's sexuality. Um, and uh, it has definitely some worksheets about the accelerator and the brake. And I think that's really good. I also usually recommend the Rosie app um, made by, uh, created by one of our OBGYNs from OMG also, um, that is uh, Lindsay Harper. And she created this app because she kind of felt like we didn't spend enough time talking to patients about this, which I know we don't. Um, and so it has a couple minutes, a couple, several couple minute segments that she, she recorded about the libido. And then there's some segments from a sex therapist and there's also um, erotic stories in there. And that's one of the other things I talk to patients about is that sometimes we just need something to kind of uh, stimulate that part of our brain again. So I think sometimes we can just shut it off when we're stressed and, and tired. And so for some of my patients, they've started liking getting in bed at night and reading erotic stories, things like romance novels. They don't have to be super steamy or super porn-like. It's whatever you're into. But the idea of getting into bed and not reading a book about women's sexuality, which feels more like homework, and actually getting in bed and reading a novel that is enjoyable, but also somewhat arousing. And then they, once they're aroused, they turn to their partner and have sex. And I have several patients who feel like that's been really helpful for them. And so what are the biological approaches to low desire? So, um, you know, this is a very complex look at um, some of the neurotransmitters and hormones that affect our sexual functioning. Like I said, it's not an on-off switch, it's complex. So for our desire, I mean, testosterone plays a part, estrogen, dopamine, um, serotonin, and all these things, and some things turn them on, some things are kind of plus or minus. Um, testosterone, something we'll talk about a bunch more later, but definitely things we can do is increasing androgens, increasing dopamine, increasing norepinephrine, those we can modulate serotonin and then the melanocortin. So these are some of the, the medications that, that are out there right now. So testosterone. So I put this as one of my early things to talk about because um, I think that it's kind of this, so it's kind of uh, an exciting thing to talk about. And I think that a lot of patients think it's exciting and come in and think they just need some testosterone. Um, I think it's a much bigger conversation than that. Um, well, what is testosterone and how does it, how does it affect us as, as, uh, as women? Um, testosterone is, our, is a metabolic, uh, reproductive and vascular hormone for us, okay? It's made in our ovaries and our adrenal glands. 
And about 50% of our circulating testosterone is actually made from the conversion of, of, of precursors to testosterone. Um, it can be aromatized to estrogen. So we have to be careful with anybody who shouldn't be on estrogen, probably shouldn't be on testosterone because we don't know how much conversion there will be in individual people. It affects our brain centrally. So there is some cognitive things that change when we have more testosterone in our bodies, but also affects us peripherally, like in our genitals. We have a lot of receptors for testosterone in our, in our vaginas and our vulvas, um, and it can actually lead to some uh, changes in our blood flow and changes in lubrication when we have tes more testosterone in our bodies. There are defi there's definitely data that pretty good randomized controlled trials looking at evidence of increased sexual desire and lower distress in women with low libido who are postmenopausal. Despite that, um, it is not FDA approved. It's probably never going to be FDA approved. And it's pretty disappointing because we do have good data about it. Um, and I do think it can help because it doesn't, it also, there's stuff that shows that it increases arousal um, and orgasm and things like that, responsiveness. So um, maybe we should give it to everybody. No, we shouldn't. Um, I'm gonna talk about who, who should get testosterone and who should we consider on the next slide. So it's actually timely that I'm doing this talk right now because a, um, uh, Ishwish just came out with a with a process of care or, or consensus statement about the use of testosterone in women um, this month. So it's just hot off the presses. Um, there was a, a global consensus statement from the International Society of, of Sexual Medicine last year they were part of also. Um, but I just kind of wanted to review who should be getting testosterone and how we should use it. Again, it's not FDA approved. And I do think it's important when you you do choose to treat a patient with testosterone that you review with the patient that this is off-label and that we don't have a lot of long-term data on safety, although what we do have doesn't look like it, it's concerning. I don't screen patients um, for uh, that have low libido with a testosterone level. There's no testosterone level that's too, that's, that makes you have low libido. You can't screen with it. I only check a testosterone level on a patient who I'm going to start on testosterone. I've already decided that. And I want to know where we're starting from. This makes it so that I'm not concerned that I that she already has an elevated testosterone or something like that. Um, how you check the testosterone level? They recommend doing a total testosterone because these the lab the the, the levels are so low for women compared to men that it's some the, these assays aren't super accurate sometimes. So they talk about you can use these kind of more accurate ones like liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry. If you have those available to you, you can do them. I don't actually know the cost difference, but um, they're saying they could be more, uh, more accurate. Um, you can test sex hormone binding globulin too. Um, it's important to do that because if they're on something oral that estro has estrogen in it, it's going to increase that from the, from the liver and that actually binds our free testosterone and decreases our testosterone levels. Our goal of treatment is to stay in normal physiologic premenopausal range. So a patient may feel good and have really great libido at a level of 400, but that's not what's been studied to be safe or um, safe for patients. Um, and that's not natural. Um, so um, normal should be in my lab 55 or less, but I want them to be in a normal physiologic range. Also staying in a normal physiologic range is going to keep them from having a lot of the side effects. So like um, hair growth, male pattern balding, voice changes, things like that. The dose is, um, uh, they don't recommend compounded testosterone, pellets, injections, or oral formulations, okay? So uh, a lot of us, and I have myself compounded testosterone in the past, they don't recommend that because of the variability um, from the compounding pharmacies. So the dose, I skipped over that part because I wanted to mention that first, but the dose they want you to use is about um, a tenth of a dose of, of, of a standard male dose. Um, so the way I use this is I um, actually prescribe Testim, which is male testosterone, um, and it's a 1% transdermal dose. If you order that for patients, it comes in 30 um, uh, tubes, which is one dose per day for a man. So I prescribe that they use one tube over 10 days, um, and so they should use one-tenth of that tube each day. It's a little hard to figure out at first, but they usually get the hang of it. Um, it's uh, is not usually covered by insurance, but you can actually get a good RX coupon for the testing for $150. And considering that lasts them basically a whole year, um, it's a pretty good deal. Um, 
Originally, most of this data is in postmenopausal women. Ishwish does say in their recent statement that you can treat women in their late reproductive years, but more research is needed. You should check a pre-starting testosterone level. You should recheck it in three to six weeks um, to make sure they don't have elevated testosterone levels, especially as they're learning what their one-tenth of a dose is, because like I said, it can be a little bit hard to figure out. And then you should check it every four to six months afterwards. It's a good idea to check lipid panel um, and liver uh, function before you start them on this, um, just to make sure they don't have already have, um, uh, they don't have abnormalities there. What else can you use? So uh, there are two actually FDA approved medications for the treatment of HSDV. Um, one of them is flibanserin or ADI. So this medication is a mixed serotonin agonist antagonist. It actually increases dopamine. Um, it was FDA approved in 2015 after a very, very, very long course to try to get FDA approved. It originally was looked at as an SSRI or antidepressant, um, uh, and they noticed that patients in these early trials said they had increased desire. So they started, they went through a lot of uh, trials to, to uh, prove efficacy. And uh, the first company that owned it uh, applied for uh, approval and were denied. And the, the company actually gave the medication to another company, which is Sprout Pharmaceuticals, who owns it now. Um, uh, and they had to go through a lot of uh, hoops that the FDA made them jump through to get that medication approved also, which was very controversial because Viagra kind of sped through the uh, approval process despite a lot of side effects with that medication. Um, they had to do things like looking at same day, uh, sorry, next day driving and uh, fatigue, and they had to look at alcohol um, and the alcohol test they did for this medication. They took uh, 25 people that were mostly men and had them drink four servings of alcohol within 10 minutes while they're on this medication and some of them passed out. And so they actually, when it first was FDA approved, there was this REMS or risk evaluation mitigation strategy that patients had to sign a form saying they wouldn't drink alcohol and we as providers had to be trained how to prescribe this. That has been, that is gone now. As of 2019, there is no longer an alcohol warning and no longer a REM. So you can prescribe this if you'd like to anybody. The recommendation is they do not take it within, do not drink two servings of alcohol within two hours of taking the medication. It is a nightly medication that they take every night before bed because it can make them sleepy. Um, it does have SSRI type side effects. So sleepiness, dizziness, nausea. It enhances the excitatory elements um, excited, sorry, excitatory elements, and it's going to lessen that inhibitory response to sexual cues. Um, the data on it is not bad. I, whenever I talk about data with patients, and I will, I tell them, and I will tell you the same, is that these are hard things to study. There is not like laboratory evidence. Uh, we're talking about, um, uh, you know, responses from women in questionnaires, and it's uh, it, there's a lot of confounding elements to all this. And so one of the endpoints they're looking at is satisfying sexual events, which is what they use for Viagra. I think I would argue it's not a good endpoint, um, but it is what it, what we have. And so um, uh, when we look at the data for flibanserin, uh, the baseline number of satisfying sexual events per month was two to three, and it increased half to one. Some people say that's not very much. I say it is, it's, it, it, it is an increase. And for women who are having sex because they feel like they want to please their partners or just doing it, you know, just because they feel like they should two or three times a month, but it's, and, and it's actually increased on this medication it shows me that people, these women are actually wanting to have more sex, which is important. They also looked at a daily desire diary and um, uh, female sexual function index questions, and they did see improvement in all of those. When you take women and you, who are low libido and you ask them to, to journal, um, every day about their sexual desire, about 30% of them will have an increase in their sexual desire because they're thinking about it every day. And so that's another reason, another thing that makes this difficult um, is that there's a high placebo rate. Um, I think this medication is an okay medication. I do prescribe it. I do not have a ton of patients that are on it. Um, I think that any of the, all these medications for a patient who has sex once every three months and dreads it the whole three months, these can be relationship changing medications for them. I also think they can help the right patients. Um, other medication that's FDA approved for treatment of HSDD is Bremelanotiver by Lisi. This was FDA approved in 2019 and came on the market in September 2019. 
Um, it is a melanocortin agonist. So they were actually looking at this medication for um, as a self-tanner and found that people were getting uh, uh, increased sexual desire. So it's a much lower dose than self-tanner, but it, it, it is a subcutaneous injection. So it's a sub-Q injector. It has an auto-injector that you inject in your um, abdomen or upper thighs 45 minutes before you want to want to have sex. Um, it is uh, highly associated with nausea. Uh, I always kind of laugh when I tell patients about it because it's kind of hard to sell uh, in, in the sense of the injection and the nausea, but the nausea is only really bad the first couple times you use it. It improves significantly after the first two times you use it. Um, most patients can tolerate the injection pretty well. Um, a lot of patients like the idea of this better because they don't want to take a medication every day that might have side effects. They want to only use the medication when they want to want to have sex. And so I think this, this medication can be pretty good. It is contraindicated in women who have uncontrolled hypertension. So that's the only person that couldn't have it. I always prescribe Zofran with it. Um, they may not need it forever, but the first couple of times they use it, I do recommend it. The data for this is, is similar. Um, they did show a decrease in, in distress about um, low libido, uh, about their sexual desire, and they did see an increase in desire um, and they did a cool thing on their, in their study. They actually made all both groups, the placebo and the control group, or placebo and the, um, the medication group, be in, the, be in placebo for the first four weeks to kind of even that playing field of that placebo effect we have with so many of these studies. And at the end of the 24-week trial, they actually asked participants if they wanted to do an open-ended um, continuation, both the placebo and the medication group, and a, and a good percentage, like I think 80% of patients decided to continue on with the, the medication. So I think that does say something. What else can you use? So um, uh, there are a lot of patients will come in and have these kind of SSRI side effect um, sexual dysfunctions. And I, I think those can be somewhat hard because you don't want to take them off their SSRI, but you you uh, you know want to want to help them. Um, one of the things you can look at is adding Wellbutrin. So bupropion or Wellbutrin um, uh, is a different kind of antidepressant, but it uh, kind of uh, can be added along with an SSRI and be, or be used as off-label for HSDD. So some patients who don't do well with other medications um, could just go on Wellbutrin, or if you feel like as you're looking through that question five in the screener that they're having depre depression as part of the depart as part of their problem, maybe starting something like uh, Wellbutrin would be a way to start. But you can also add it um, up to 300 milligrams a day with other SSRIs to help reverse those side effects. Um, trazodone has a, a little bit of data showing it has some pro-sexual side effects and that's something else you could add to an SSRI. And then Buspar, there's one trial that found improvement of sexual function and depressed women on SSRIs for adding that. Now, I'll be honest, I'm not super brave about changing around a lot of psych meds since I'm a gynecologist, and so I often uh, discuss with the patient's primary care doctor or um, uh, their um, uh, psychiatrist um, if they're seeing someone else about, about changing these medications around, but I definitely think these are good options. Testosterone has been looked at in, in a few studies, uh, or at least one study looking at SSRIs, and it did not... Um, it, they had a little bit more desire for sex, but did not de decrease their distress about desire. So it's not been shown to be super effective for that. So I didn't make a summary slide because I wanted to make sure I didn't have that many slides, but um, I will say that, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening to this. I think that this is a really important part of our job as gynecologists and even as primary care doctors, if you're here as a primary care doctor, because patients, this is a really common problem and patients want us to bring it up and talk to them about it and they want to know that there's something that can help them. And even if you don't have all the answers, I think just asking them and letting them know that there are answers out there, I think is really important for patients. Um, and um, I think that, you know, sex is good for us. <laughs> it's an enjoyable part of our lives and it's um, fun to help, help patients um, get to having better sex lives. Um, well, if I can, if this is my contact information, if I can be of any help to anybody, please let me know. And then I think we have a Q&A session now. I'm back. And oh, Jane light herself up as well. We're going to ask Ashley a few questions, both questions that we had come up with ahead of time to sort of dig deeper into some of what she told us and also uh, questions as they come in from the audience. Um, so we will throw those at her as well. Uh, first of all, I did want to say, um, 
you gave us a really complex model of female sexual response, which is, is good. Is that universal for women? Are some women more hormonally driven, some less? You know, what do you see in your practice? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I don't think one one model fits every person by any means. I mean, I think there's different aspects to this. I think there's kind of this cognitive desire we have and this kind of hormonal desire. And I think they overlap a lot. I don't think you can piece them out very easily. Um, you know, I think that our hormones play a part in this. I think that when we think about, you know, uh, you know, kind of a, a, you know, a postpartum woman who's, you know, breastfeeding and uh, has, you know, lower estrogen levels and some, you know, some pain with sex and things like that. I think that affects things. Same with menopausal women who aren't, or perimenopausal women who aren't sleeping well. I think the hormones play a part in that. Um, uh, is it the whole story though? I don't think so. So I think that that circular uh, response model is good because it takes into account different places people come from. And I, uh, I think that, that, that I think there's many aspects to that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Hi, Ashley. <laughs> Hello. Sorry, guys. Sorry, guys, for for being MIA. Um, my question is actually, um, you know, we were so excited, and we actually pointed it out in our OBG um, uh, uh, email, L&D email, you know, that ACOG uh, published this committee opinion about. Um, informed care regarding trauma. And I was just curious, how do you approach patients where you've elicited in their history that they do have a history of trauma and that may be playing a role? How, how do you manage those patients? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that, um, I think it's a really important question to ask patients when we, when we um, are looking at these, these kind of problems. So I do definitely think it can play a role. And I think for some patients they've, um, kind of dealt with their trauma and have already gone through therapy and are in a stable partner relationship where trauma doesn't come up for them as much. But for some patients, trauma does still come up for them a lot. And so I usually ask them about kind of, you know, about if there's a history of trauma and kind of where they're at um, in kind of coping with their trauma. And I think that therapy is a really important aspect of that. Um, and yeah. maybe both, both, um, yeah, like sex therapy or, you know, just general therapy, but also sometimes physical therapy. Um, yeah. you know, a lot of patients come in and say to me, I have low libido. And then when I ask them, they say they have horrible pain with sex, you know, things like that. And so I think that you, you know, and I think trauma can play a part in that. Um, if they're having pain with sex because they've had trauma in the past and um, they have a super tight pelvic floor because of some of, you know, some of their experiences, then that's something that needs to be addressed. So I think it's definitely important to take it into account when you look at the big picture of this. So we have some really good questions coming in from the audience. So I'm gonna sort of filter them in as we go along. Um, the first one is someone asked about trazodone and have you found that trazodone is too sedating when using it for this? Yeah, I mean, what we usually use it for is what I, you know, usually is for is, is sleep. Um, so I definitely think it can be sedating. I also think that you know, phlebanserin is going to be sedating and any of the SSRIs could be sedating. So um, I don't think the data is amazing about trazodone. Um, I think that if you have a patient that's already, I wouldn't start somebody on trazodone just as a first line therapy for low libido. But if you had a patient that had was on an SSRI and had tried some other things and it wasn't really working, it potentially could be something that would be helpful. Um, but I, I definitely think you should counsel the patient that it could make them sleepy. But maybe getting more sleep might help. It's hard to say. <laughs> And then another question in our from our audience is erotica recommendations. Where do you send women for erotica? Because I know a lot of us, and, and this is a good question, because I know a lot of us when we're talking to women, there's a lot of concern about the porn industry and how it treats women, even that porn industry run by women. So where do we go? I think that's a great question. I always tell patients I don't have like a list of books <laughs> I recommend or erotic. It kind of depends on what they're into. Um, you know, if you Google uh, steamy romance novel lists, they're def they definitely exist. It kind of just depends on what you're into. Um, I actually think that, you know, Lindsay Harper's uh, app, the Rosie app, is kind of a, a good uh, segue into that because she has a lot of erotic, different kinds of erotic stories on there. And they tell you how long they are to read and what kind of, uh, what kind of aspects are in them. So if you're kind of not sure what you're into, I think it's kind of a good way to look at it. Um, but I don't have specific lists that I tell patients about, but I usually 
it feels a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit less intimidating to talk about romance novels, I guess I would say, for patients who are kind of not sure about it than actual more, you know, more erotic things. But I think it's just, you know, whatever they're into. Um, and I, I'm just going to add in there, I tend to send patients also to OMGS, which is a great website oh, yes. for women's sexual function, um, yes. and Dipsy, which is audible for erotic stories. Perfect. Thank you. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. OMGS is a great website. I highly recommend that to patients too. Uh, and then the last one I'm seeing in the chat is, what's your approach to orgasmic disorders? And that's obviously a big question, but if you give us sort of a brief. <laughs> right. So yeah, orgasmic disorders are, are difficult. They're, the, if you think about it, the pathway that in our bodies to orgasm is somewhat complex. So it, there's a brain stimulation, there's, you know, uh, there's pelvic, you know, obviously genital stimulation, and there's some communication between those two things. So a big pathway has to happen. There's pelvic floor muscles involved, um, you know, a lot of neurons. So it's a complex, um, it's a complex thing. And so trying to kind of figure out um, if it is a lifelong orgasmic disorder or a new orgasmic disorder, is there an SSRI involved in it? Um, uh, looking at self-exploration for some patients who've never been able to reach orgasm before. Um, I, the OMGS website that Becca mentioned, I think is helpful because it kind of looks at um, in an in a attempted scientific manner, like how women reach pleasure. And I think, you know, for a lot of our male partners, like they can see their sexual organs and they just know, you know, like it's easier for them to figure things out. But a lot of women learn about sex from their male partners, like when they're teenagers who don't know anything about yeah. sex. And yeah. so, and so I like, they don't know, and women don't talk about masturbation, at least not very much. Like, it's not something that you talk about with your girlfriends. Um, so I think that, you know, I encourage them to know their bodies and know, like, to explore masturbation and explore, you know, clitoral stimulation devices and things like that. Um, there, you know, is a little bit of data about potentially using, like, Sildenafil or Viagra, like topically for blood flow or even orally. Yeah. I've done a lot of that, um, but it's an interesting idea because it really is a blood flow thing. Um, uh, but I, I would definitely say orgasmic disorder can be difficult. And especially if there's an SSRI involved too, that I think that can be hard too. Have you had patients report back to you after trying uh, Viagra, female patients? I haven't had a lot of patients on it yet. Um, but I, you know, there, like I said, there is a little bit of data about increase, you know, using it for increased blood flow there. Um, but there's yeah. not data that it's going to increase libido or anything like that. Right, 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 right. Um, someone writes in, where do you have them place the test gem? The website for men says upper arms and shoulders. So I usually have them do inner thigh. Um, they could do it in their armpit too. Um, uh, vulva tends to be somewhat irritating place to put it. Um, but they definitely want to try to rub it in and then wash their hands. You wouldn't want to get that on like a, you know, a child or pregnant woman, that kind of thing. So, um, but somewhere that you can rub it in, but usually inner thigh is a good place. One of the writing questions also actually addresses one of the things that we were going to talk about anyway, which is partners. Do you ever yeah. see with their partners? Do you find it helpful to counsel women with their partners? How do you handle that? Um, what's your experience with partner counseling? It's a good question. You know, uh, you know, lately with COVID, we haven't had any partners in, and I actually, I used to have more partners in, and, and you know what, I almost kind of feel like it's nice seeing the, the patient by themselves, because um, some of these, some partners are, you know, talk for patients and things like that. It's definitely not, not the most common thing, but sometimes it's nice to get the patient's uh, story of where things are at first. Um, I definitely think partners need to be involved in this conversation, though, um, because it is two-way street, and I definitely think uh, a woman's sexual dysfunction or sexual pain could definitely affect their partner's uh, sexual response too. Um, so I think, I do think it's important to have them be part of the conversation. I specifically, you know, I always say kind of limit myself to a point where, you know, I'm definitely not a sex therapist. And at some point I think um, when the partner dynamics get somewhat more complex, I definitely think that sex therapy can be really helpful for both partners. Um, in the office for, for mostly for sexual pain stuff, I also find them sometimes to be helpful just to get more information. But I definitely think involving them is important. Um, what is the website for the OGNS? Oh, the OMGS? 
It's omgyes.com. There we go. Uh, somebody asks on your thoughts about Scream Cream. <laughs> well, uh, Becca and I talked about this a lot. There are like 75 menu uh, recipes for that. Yeah, there are different ones in there are different uh, uh, aspects to Scream Cream. But, you know, the idea is that you rub it on your clitoris for 10 minutes before you have sex. And I, Becca and I often say, well, if you rub anything on your clitoris for 10 minutes before you have sex, you're going to be more sexually aroused. So I'm not sure it really matters what's in it. There's no real data about it. I mean, I know they're doing some studies right now about topical sildenafil um, that's sometimes in it, L-arginine. There is a little bit of data about L-arginine. Um, sometimes there's oxytocin and definitely that's Part of orgasmic part of orgasm so i mean the idea behind it is a good idea i just don't know if it really matters what's in it if they just did it with coconut oil for 10 minutes before sex it probably would help so i i don't yeah. feel super strongly about it but i don't think there's anything dangerous about it necessarily either so it kind of just depends on what you're you know what you know if you want to look into that or not and we also have a question about clitoral pumps clitoral pumps yeah yeah so, I mean, I definitely think that can be helpful, especially when we go back to like the orgasmic disorder or even sometimes arousal disorder patients is that um, getting more blood flow to the clitoris, whether it's medication wise or just by st stimulation, manual stimulation can be helpful. And then there are patients that do really well. It's kind of the idea behind, um, uh, you know, penile uh, pumps where they just pull more blood flow into the penis. It's the same kind of thing. And you can put that on the clitoris and it just kind of sucks, sucks, suction so you get more blood flow into them. So I definitely think for patients that could be helpful. Um, I think it can be painful. So my postmenopausal patients who tried it has felt it's painful because that area is just more sensitive. But in some patients, it actually helps because they just get more blood flow to that area, which um, for especially for the postmenopausal patients can be really important and helpful. And I sometimes recommend the the clitoral stimulators like the Lilosona and the Womanizer, which is a terrible name, um, which are partly pump because they do suction the clitoris in, but then they also send deep sound waves down the clitoral body. Um, hey, I have a question for both of you, and Rebecca, you might be able to answer this given your work uh, in telehealth. Um, let's say you're somewhere across the country. Is there a website that people can go to uh, that is a warehouse? specifically for sex therapists, or do you have to kind of go to psychologytoday.com and that type of thing? So I, the ASECT website, I can remember what ASECT stands for, like American Society of Registered Sex Therapists, something like that. Okay. Um, there's no R in it, so whatever. There's <laughs> something like that, but ASECT, A-S-S-E-C-T, I think it is. They, you okay. can find whichever, you can look by region. I found or by, it, yeah. Yeah, by zip code, and it will list the sex therapists in your area. There is not a lot of them. Um, and so um, it's, I think if you're wanting to add this part into your practice, um, I think it's important to kind of know a few of them that you can refer patients to. They're generally hard to get in with and they generally don't take insurance, which can be difficult for a lot of patients. Yeah. Um, but I think they can be a really important aspect to this. I mean, these medications for sure can be helpful, but they're not the whole story. You really have to look at those modifiable biopsychosocial factors. And I feel like um, I can only go so far in my 30, 40 minutes with patients, but I think sex therapists can kind of go the full route with those kind of things. And so I think they're, they're really, really important aspects to this. I agree. Yeah. And um, Rosie's a good um, resource for that as well, the Rosie app, because there's a certain amount oh. that's actually behind the paywall is a decent amount of DIY sex therapy. So if you can't oh, wow. find something afford in your region, it's at least a good start place. Um, and then there's a question about persistent, persistent genital arousal disorder. And oh, yeah, we see that on OMG sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yes, this this is a thing. And this is a, 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 it is a very, very distressing thing for, for patients. Um, so it's the idea that they have like inappropriate or continuous sexual arousal. They may walk around and have orgasms. Um, it, like they have super high rates of depression and suicide. It is very, very distressing. Um, actually, it was, I think just published or maybe it's in publication right now, whole process of care statement about how to work this up. It's actually super interesting, but also really complex because it's kind of like the orgasm um, uh, thought is that you kind of takes all these different parts of your body and pulls them together. So when you have persistent genital arousal disorder, is it 
is it just from the clitoris? Is it something in the pelvic floor? Is it something in the spinal cord that's, that's stimulating that part of your brain? Or is something in your brain? There's like five different regions you have to kind of consider that could be, could be causing this. And then you have to kind of, once you find the cause and you can start a treatment. So um, I definitely see these patients. I'm obviously good at ruling out stuff with the, the vulva and the clitoris and kind of looking at pelvic, some pelvic floor stuff, but you really kind of need a neurologist to be involved sometimes to kind of do some nerve testing. And I was going to say, do you do some EMGs? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I have a one neurologist I've worked with a couple, for a couple patients with um, for it. Um, sometimes an MRI can be helpful looking at like just things that you can like tablov tarlov cysts things you can find in the spine um uh, in the spinal spinal area that can be affecting these things but um definitely super interesting but also challenging um some of these patients will do well like while you're trying to figure it out putting them like on an ssri because it kind of reduces that sexual so stimulation kind of the opposite of what we were talking about most of this but you know it does definitely can sometimes help but it's not always the whole story yeah and I do want to bring up one question we had sent you ahead, just because I think people will ask this question, which is, you know, you've specialized your practice in gynecology and sexual function. Is this a sustainable model? Like, can you make, does insurance reimburse for the complexity that these discussions take into account? I hope it's sustainable because I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, so far it is. I mean, I'm an employed physician, so, uh, you know, I, I don't maybe feel the effects of reinsurance reimbursement or lack of reimbursement as much as some private practice physicians may. Um, I would argue you probably could have a, pay, a cash pay practice doing a lot of this though, because patients uh, are fairly desperate for help with these things. Um, I, I think that um, a lot of my consults are pretty complex consults that I can bill 99204s or 99205s with. Um, and so I, I I think it's, you know, and, you know, I also do some minor GYN surgeries and stuff like that too. So, but I, I do think it's a sustainable model because I do think that once you, people in your area realize you do this, even your own partners, they're going to be excited to send patients to you because this yeah. stuff is not easy and it takes a lot of time. And um, I, I guess I can feel lucky that I can just kind of dedicate my practice to this. It's not like I'm running off to deliver a baby and I only have a couple of minutes to talk about this. Um, I, I found this stuff really hard to fit into my other practice. And I don't think it's impossible to fit in for people who are doing both, but um, it's also nice to know someone you could refer patients to if you've kind of given it a try and don't know what else to do. So I, I do feel like it is a sustainable model, um, but it definitely takes some kind of seeking out some education on these things, just because, like I said, I mean, I personally didn't learn really any of this stuff in residency. And three years ago, if patients came to me today with some of the complaints I see all the time, I would be somewhat unhelpful. So, um, yeah, but I, it's been exciting to learn all this stuff, for sure. Yeah. And at the other end of the spectrum, I can't recommend enough uh, Peggy Ornstein's two books, Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex, I think it's really helpful to understand some of the gendered orientation of our, our sexuality in the way in which we inculcate ideas, you know, starting in, in girlhood and boyhood um, and how those end up influencing our lives as, as women. Um, so anyway, I gotta, I gotta plug in for that. I, I love her writing on sex. Super interesting, yeah, that sounds great. And the what I want to make a plug too, because you know Ashley mentioned uh, or Dr. Fuller mentioned uh, a tired woman's guide to passionate sex. And uh, Dr. Lori Mintz, who's the sex therapist who wrote that, also wrote a book that I often assign as homework for the partner, and it's called Becoming Clitorate. Oh yeah, and it explains how all that works because there mm -hmm. are a lot of partners who do not know. <laughs> so it's always good for giving true. homework to one partner that the other partner gets some homework too. <laughs> yeah, I had someone ask, I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone, the uh, person said, maybe, maybe some women don't want to have sex because they're not having good sex. Is that part of it? And so it's, definitely, it's not the whole, the whole answer, but I you can't hurt anything, right? Yeah. Right. No, it's so true. It's so true. We've definitely got a couple of requests for a reference, for a list of resources. So we'll, we'll, we'll work that up and we'll provide it in the final like video slide set and also, um, via email i'm sure we can send out to everyone who's i'm sure out. yeah we can send those out well uh ashley I, I i bet if the crowd if you could hear the crowd they'd be clapping wildly um <laughs> but rebecca and i just cannot thank you enough i mean the level of your expertise here is just uh through the roof so we're we're just so lucky to have you in 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 this community
Oh, well, thank you so much. It, it feels a little bit like giving a giving a talk to an empty room because I'm in a room by myself. Uh, so I appreciate the, the virtual applause. Um, but thank you for having me. It was super fun to do. And I'm just really excited about this topic. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk to everybody. I appreciate you asking me. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you to all the people who attended live. And certainly thank I you know. to the people who will attend later in video review. Um, I think this is such an important topic to be able to give our patients good care around. Yeah. And I think that's us. I think that's it. So thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you so much, you guys. I appreciate it. Have a great night. Bye. You too. Bye, everyone. Be sure to tune in next month for uh, vaginal birth after cesarean. It's going to be a great talk.